Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Eva Cheska DeAngelis, an integrative counselor and founder of Temple Soda Luce, based in Manhattan. Welcome, Eva Cheska. Thank you. Thank you. I think you also left out one crucial piece of uh, my intro. Which oh, well, is I did. I, I, Eva Cheska is my daughter, and uh, I was leading up to that. Okay. <laughs> well, hi, Dad. You? I'm well, thank hi. you. How are you? <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Excited to be here with you. So today we're going to be talking about some of our experiences with psychedelic medicine. And um, I'd like to begin by uh, reminding people that we had an earlier conversation, Eva Cheska and I, which is on the archive. And uh, you can hear that it's under uh, psychedelic uh, families because Eva Cheska grew up in a psychedelic family. Correct? That's a technical term, right? <laughs> a technical term, indeed. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, that was a really great conversation. And I'm happy to be back and excited to be participating in mind, mind body, health, and politics more with you as we go forward. So, you recently joined this world or this renaissance, I might add, mm -hmm. in psychedelic medicine. Uh, you had a long career in fashion prior to that. In fact, prior to uh, your last position was with uh, you were vice president of Avon, uh, as I recall. And uh, before that, you worked with uh, Tyra Banks in uh, Los Angeles. I did. So. How did you go from being an executive in the fashion world to an integrative counselor uh, in the psychedelic world? Yeah, I was well, I was an executive in uh, fashion, skincare, cosmetics, and uh, and then came here. Well, that's a really great question, Dad. Um, you know, I've been getting this question a lot recently, and so it's really um, created a space for me to reflect upon my story and my path and how I got here. And, um, you know, the, the medicine path, I think was something that was always kind of floating in my periphery, obviously, given the way that I was raised, um, and the exploration also of general esoteric, um, concepts. And, uh, there just really kind of got to be a point, um, when I was working in corporate America, where I, I really loved a lot of what I was doing. I loved uh, being an executive leader. I loved supporting a team of people to grow. And that was the piece of feedback that actually made me feel the best in my work was that I was supporting people's personal growth and development. And yet I felt like there was really something missing. And it was a deep inherent call to support that and create more spaces for the facilitation of growth and healing um, that I, I just couldn't do in such an expansive manner um, in those corporate contexts. And so uh, after a lot of back and forth internally, um, it became very evident that it was time to actually follow my deep calling and the family business really, um, and go back to school and study psychology and become certified as a counselor and mindfulness and meditation facilitator 
and start to dig into this work more deeply alongside, of course, doing my own work um, in the space as well. When you, when you say your own work, that means your own work in the world of psychedelic medicine or it your does. own work and is expanding your consciousness or both? All of the above. Um, one of the things that I have really leaned into as a personal philosophy is that um, I must walk the walk. And, uh, you know, I, I really believe that it's crucial that I can speak from my own experiences with my clients and the people that I support um, rather than speaking from something solely that I've learned in a book um, or through a course. And one of the first things you did, I don't know, maybe first isn't the right word, but early on in your career in psychedelics, you uh, went to Peru. What, tell us about your trip to Peru and what that yeah. was like for you down there. Wow. Um, gosh, I, yes. So I have spent, um, a month in the Amazon jungle studying with the ayahuasca foundation, um, sitting with ayahuasca three times a week, um, and learning about other, um, modalities of plant medicine as well. Um, and spending a lot of time going inside, um, working on myself, opening up new pathways to understand myself, delve more deeply into my own consciousness and also heal from the various, um, I would say traumas with a lowercase T, if you will. And also, you know, aspects of healing myself and the self-inflicted traumas that I'd experienced throughout my life. And also learning about how to truly integrate that and support others in that integration as well. So that was earlier this year. It was a really, really profound experience. We hear a lot about these places in Peru, in Jamaica, in Costa Rica, perhaps in Mexico. And it's very difficult for the average person to figure out which are the real places and which are the trying to make a quick buck because there's a renaissance in psychedelic medicine. Uh, which are the real shaman, if there is such a thing as a real shaman, and which are the fly-by-nights. And of course, nobody wants, in, in the United States, nobody wants to get on a plane and go to some faraway country to take an exotic medicine and have it be led by scam artists. And so there's a certain amount of fear out there uh, in the public. Uh, and how are you able to vet this place that you went to? What, what Did you go through a procedure, talk to friends? What did you do to ensure that the place you were going to was a righteous place? Yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. I think both um, outside of our country and inside our country, it's really, really important uh, to do your research um, on the organization or the person or people with whom you are engaging and working to make sure that you know it, you are vetting it to the best of your ability. So that means, of course, not only talking to friends who perhaps referred you, asking about their experiences, but also doing some, some deep diligence on the organization. Like I said, I, I uh, was working with the Ayahuasca Foundation. So um, did a great deal of research there on the work that they have done. And also they are partnering with a, a lineage um, that is an un unbroken, fairly unbroken lineage out of the Amazon jungle that ayahuasca and, and vegetalismo, I believe it's called, which is the study of vegetables and plants as medicines outside of psychedelics, outside of entheogens, has been part of their culture for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years, as far back as 
we can possibly go. I think, you know, as this renaissance continues, it is one of the risks. It's one of the things that we're probably seeing more and more of is that, you know, almost anybody these days could potentially call themselves a shaman and just decide to do this. So I would say the vetting process means talking to reputable sources, talking to friends or acquaintances who have experiences if you're able to. If you're one of the people who's fresh in your group and you're, you know, maybe you're the pioneer, then, you know, getting on the phone with somebody at the organization, having a list of questions to ask, how they're conducting their ceremonies, how they're conducting their programs, what you can be in for, what you can look at. And if anything makes you uncomfortable, really pressure testing that discomfort. I think that's very important. With certain exceptions, I think the city of Oakland in California is an exception that they in that they made anything that grows in the ground illegal to ingest. But I think with the exception of of uh, Oakland and possibly Denver, Colorado, ayahuasca, as is LSD and MDMA and psilocybin, um, are illegal in the United States. So therefore people who are wanting these experiences either have the option to do something illegal and, and, and take the substance, uh, hopefully guided in the United States, or to fly to another country where it is legal. But one of the problems with that that I hear in, you know, in, the, in the TomTom system is that, oh, yeah, well, yeah, you can fly somewhere, but how many people can afford that? What they've done is they're making this experience only for the very rich or the people who have a ton of money so they can go down there. And once again, we have social inequality. The average teacher in the United States can't fly to Costa Rica to, uh, uh, to take ayahuasca or to take something else. And um, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a problem across the board with psychedelic medicine. I don't think it's specific to ayahuasca. I think, you know, you listed... Um, you know, other medicines as well. And it, it actually, yes, there's a, a plane flight and, you know, the cost of staying somewhere, but even at the facilities, uh, you know, within our country that maybe are running underground or in the few places that uh, they are legal, it does, uh, in, in my view, it does seem to be creating a, um, a divide between the people who have access and the people who don't. And I think as we move toward, ideally move toward legalization and decriminalization, um, access is something that's going to be incredibly important. Um, Very, very important. So you decided to go to Peru and study for a month and to study ayahuasca. How did you make that decision towards the medicine ayahuasca contrasted with why didn't you connect with somebody in the United States and take 12 LSD experiences in one month or a whole series of psilocybin uh, experiences in one month? What what moved you towards uh, the ayahuasca? Yeah, great question. I, um, I do personally have experiences with those other medicines as well. Um, one of the things that really called me toward ayahuasca and also, you know, calls me toward psilocybin to an extent is, um, the, the reverence for the indigenous practices that go hand in hand. Um, I think that one of the things that's missing with the practices, um, in Western culture is the, um, 
the understanding, the insight into these cultures that have been using these medicines um, throughout history, that they've been part of their medicine, their, their communities, their medicines, their application of their own connection to um, metaphysical or esoteric or interconnection or community connection. Um, you know, in, in Mexico, indigenous peoples were using psilocybin ceremonially for so long and ayahuasca in Peru and in Colombia and in Brazil. And so with my deepening my understanding of psychology as I've continued my education and am in school and with my own practice with my clients, having this additional layer of an understanding of what a ceremony actually looks like, how a ceremony is conducted, um, how to hold space in a truly ceremonial way um, and pull the, the reverence and that application into that space adds an additional layer that I think um, bringing it back, bringing that training and that understanding back into this world can be very helpful in holding space for people um, as they're doing their own work. And I now pull a lot of that training into various other applications of my work, into my um, guided meditation ceremonies that I do and my sound ceremonies that I do with groups um, and various other contexts. So what, if I understand you then, what you're saying is that the ceremonies and the setting around the psychedelic medicine are very important, perhaps almost as important as the medicine itself. Yes. Yeah. That's beautifully said, Dad. Thank you for summarizing it that way. I, I really, truly do believe that. I feel that... Um, I feel that one of the things that we're seeing a lot, and you can see it with the opioid epidemic, pandemic, what would you call it, Dad? <laughs> Crisis? The opioid, oh, the opioid, it's an epidemic. Epidemic, yeah. So one of the things that we're seeing with the opioid epidemic, right, is that people are getting a prescription and being sent on their way. And um, I, I have a lot of friends who are um, either studying psychedelic therapy or in the psychedelic medicine space. And I'm seeing uh, a risk of quick fix because that is very American. It's very much American culture to say, okay, like here's the quick fix. How can I just put some kind of a fix on this? Whereas I have found that when you pull a concept of reverence or, or uh, a sacred um, overtone, a ceremonial overtone to work, it creates a space where people kind of take a beat they kind of pause and they realize that they're entering into something that actually requires intention, uh, deliberation, thought, commitment, and also a ceremonial context helps to set a container where somebody actually creates reverence for themselves and their own work too, rather than I'm broken, doc, you got to fix me, which I think we see a lot in our culture. It's okay, this is actually going to take some work and commitment, and there is a container here that can hold that work and commitment and space. Um, and I think that's really beautiful and it's it's really influenced um, a lot of the work that I do. And uh, it uh, frankly, it influences more and more, the deeper I go into this space, it influences more and more of my day-to-day -day practices, um, not just how I work with, with my clients, but also how I, of course, because it starts at home, it starts within, how I engage with myself and my own practices too. 
You know, a lot of what you're saying is somewhat mysterious to me because I was trained in a whole different way uh, in the use of psychedelic medicines. And I was trained that the setting was extremely important, you know, where the, the experience took place and what the mental set of the person was and what the and 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 to look at the intention and then the medicine is given to the uh patient or the client and they take it but there's no ceremony there's no particular uh you know uh, uh, uh vibrations going on no bells no bowls uh no sacrament it's it's much more like um taking of almost any medicine, except that the focus in the beginning prior to ingesting is making certain that the setting, as I said, the atmosphere is appropriate and the person's mental set is appropriate. And of course, people are vetted that they're appropriate candidates for it. But all the things that you're talking about, these other things are, are um, they're just not they're not in my training and they're not really quite in my understanding. In fact, if anything, they look sort of voodoo-ish to me. You know, wh- you know what, is, what is all this about? Why do I need to go to a Peruvian jungle when I can do the same thing right in my own neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, the fundamentals are not all too different. I mean, I said intention, container, deliberation. You said set, setting, intention, right? Um, and, and of course those are things I I learned in my upbringing. I think in our last conversation I shared with you, I don't really remember a point in time in my life where the concept of set and setting wasn't in my, my you you were brought up with that. Right. Right. And so it's, it's actually not all too different, uh, in that it's an added layer. It's an added layer of the container. It's an added layer of the flow and the process. It's an added layer of um, of really holding that space and what that really looks like. And, uh, it's a little bit, you know, in, in some of the work that I do, um, with sound, for example, that I've taken some of the lessons that I've learned from, uh, psychedelic medicine and applied them to sound meditation. That is how do you hold that container? So somebody can have a psychedelic journey without, without medicine using sound to open up those neural pathways. And that's very much a ceremonial application that it's um, not just like, okay, we're going to open the doors and go, but it's how do we ease into this? How do we set this container in such a way that guides a journey um, and guides a ceremony to a place where somebody can really, really feel safe by the time they get to maybe something that's a a little bit bigger than they would be able to manage on their own without uh, that space holder. Uh, would you elaborate, please, on what you're talking about when you reference sound, cr- making sound and using sound as a meditation uh, technique or sound as a healing modality? Yeah. Um, so I mean, what, you're, you're not talking about noise. You're talking about deliberately made sounds. Yeah. I have a, a variety of instruments uh, that I use, some of them in softer tones, some of them in higher tones some of them in lower tones. Uh, they have, you know, for example, um, a Shruti box, which is something that uh, blows air through it and, and harmonizes tones. I have singing bowls. Sometimes I use my own voice. 
I have chimes. Um, I have a hand pan, various instruments that resonate with different parts of the, the nervous system and the body. And also sound specifically is directly correlated to um, some of the same kind of receptors in our mind that psychedelic medicine opens up as well. And so setting that container and guiding a journey through sound can be a very similar type of experience. But without that kind of ceremonial training, I don't know that I would uh, be able to conduct the flow in the same way. Is the theory behind what you're saying that the sounds connect with the vibrational electrochemical system in the body and there's some kind of resonance that's being created between the sounds that you're producing and the uh, in, the inner workings of the person is that it correct yeah yeah fascinating yeah fascinating. there's actually i don't i um I don't know who the author is, but there's a great book that has some very interesting information about this. It's called The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound. And it speaks to the various vibrations in the body and the various vibrations of different sounds that you can find in nature and also in instruments and how those correlate together. Now, you've also uh, had experience both personally and as a guide with, uh, with uh, psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. Could would you please say something about how you would compare a, a strong a dose of psilocybin uh, to an ayahuasca experience? Yeah, so um, I'm sure uh, many of our listeners have either, and I know that you interviewed him, have either read um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan or have seen the uh, the... Netflix special that just came out and also likely um, Fantastic Fungi. And I believe in both, uh, the mycelium network is referenced. Um, does that sound correct to you? Yes. Yeah. So uh, the mycelium network is essentially this giant underground communication network um, through which mushrooms send messages underground and other plant life also can send messages. And I believe recently scientists equated some of the messages that they send to mushrooms being able to learn up to 50 words, you know, words being in quotes, but of their own type of communication because of the way that the network gets opened. Um, so I find that with a, a psilocybin uh, ceremony or journey, I like to equate it to the mycelium network taking place inside our minds things just get really, really opened. And that's why I find it, especially with, um, with psilocybin intention is so incredibly important because if you go in without an intention, I feel like everything can just kind of open up and you can find yourself very, very lost um, because it's so open. Um, with ayahuasca, I feel that you can be a little bit more uh, broad with an intention. I have... Um, I have personally gone into ayahuasca ceremonies with the intention of teach me, heal me, show me, and received some of the most profound uh, takeaways of my ceremonial work personally. I wouldn't enter into a psilocybin ceremony that way. That's far too broad for psilocybin. Um, I think that psilocybin being more specific can be very helpful. And just speaking from my own experience, it's because of the, the different... Um, openings that get created with the two different medicines. 
And then of course, I also think, you know, there are different, uh, different physiological uh, feelings, right? So I think that you get, you can get more of a, a body high um, with psilocybin than you would necessarily with ayahuasca. Um, the visuals can be very, very different. You get likely people report more patterns um, with psilocybin, whereas with ayahuasca, it's everything from sacred geometry patterns to very vivid animals to faces and everything in between. Do you, do you know anything that you can share about the downside of taking ayahuasca? Um, I do know that it can be taxing on the kidneys. Um, I, I definitely know that. Um, I also, you know, think that with all of these medicines, it doesn't really matter what, if it's ayahuasca, psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, um, allowing space and time for integration rather than jumping from, you know, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next for a very, very extended period of time is really, really important and really crucial. Um, without integration, I don't think any of this work uh, makes that much of a difference. Of course, it opens new neural pathways for us and, and creates a level of expansion. But one thing that is different for us than these indigenous cultures is that you know they kind of live in this space of they're just engaging with plant medicine all the time. And they don't have a, a nine to five that they have to go back to necessarily. They don't have the New York City streets that they have to walk. And for us, you know, we have these profound experiences and then we have to return to our lives and, and integration is absolutely crucial. Um, and so I think that, you know, with any of these things, ensuring that we're treating them like medicine, not like drugs, ensuring that we are approaching the experience with reverence. Um, I, I actually don't think it matters what the medicine is. I think those are some good guidelines and ground rules that I like to stay within the parameters of. So in, in the breakthrough research that was done some years ago uh, by Roland Griffiths at John Hopkins on psilocybin, and by the way, my interview, or one or two interviews with, uh, uh, with Roland Griffiths is on the website for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, for those of you who'd like to hear it. Um, he gave uh, one dose of uh, psilocybin to the subjects. Uh, they were pre-tested for depression. And then a year later, they were tested again for depression, and uh, they were, there was still benefit from one dose a year later. And so that made headlines around the world and is still making headlines around the world because mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical companies in the United States give medicines that have to be taken every single day of the year for 365 nice. days a year, which in a way is giving the pharmaceutical companies an annuity. And along comes this medicine, psilocybin, psychedelic mushrooms, which there's now scientific evidence you can take one dose and get relief from depression, which lasts a, an entire year. What is the purpose then of taking ayahuasca three times a week for an entire month? Isn't that excessive? Well, that was more for a training program and not something that I think would be like uh, for everybody going into you know, their own deep work. It had, for me, it had the benefit of doing my own work and training, um, and learning, um, you know, to deepen my understanding of my path and the work that I'm doing here. But I would say in general, I don't know that I would recommend that as an ongoing practice by any means. 
Well, not in as an on, but even as training. I mean, could you foresee when people are trained in LSD therapy and in psilocybin therapy, where they might be taking LSD three times a week for a month or psilocybin three times a week for a month? Uh, I can see psilocybin. I, I personally tend to be more comfortable with plant medicine than synthetics. Um, I feel, I just feel more comfortable with that generally, um, you know, without, you know, especially when it comes to like MDMA or ketamine, um, I, I would say LSD is derived from plants, but it's still synthesized. It's just like with food, right? The less processed it is, the more comfortable I am putting it in my body. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I can see that for training purposes, for learning purposes, again, not making it an ongoing practice per se, you know, everybody's different. Um, I, I stand by what I said regarding integration. And also, you know, there's really something to be said for um, sitting in a ceremony and not uh, drinking the medicine. And, and that's something that, you know, can take place in some of these programs as well. You know, if you, it's always optional. Um, it's not necessarily something that you have to do. You know, if you're in a program where you're drinking three times a week um, as part of your training, you don't have to drink. Um, listen to your body and pay attention to what makes sense. And, and that happens very frequently. What happens in an integration session? Such an important question. It's one of my favorite, favorite things to do. Um, <sighs> integration work is so important. and. Uh, I'm just going to digress from the question really quickly and just say that integration can actually, integration practices can be applied to almost anything. You know, you have a really fantastic date with somebody and you really like the way that you showed up. <laughs> you can say, you can review your behaviors and say, wow, I'd really like to integrate these behaviors into my life. How can I do that? So in an integration session, when you have had a profound or even Maybe in the moment, it doesn't seem that profound, but you've discovered something uh, in a journey or in a ceremony or in a psychedelic therapy session. Um, integration and an integration session takes you back to that moment, starts to unpack that experience, and then begins to create, um, for lack of a better word, a plan, if you will, of how you can start to build that behavior or new thought process or new discovery into your day-to-day -day life. And so oftentimes um, in integration sessions, I approach uh, integration first with a meditation and bringing uh, you know, the subject or the client back into that moment, really visualizing whatever it is that specific intention is, and then starting to discuss, okay, where can this be implemented? into day-to-day -day life and then creating some practices and you know, oftentimes homework around how to integrate. And sometimes that is journaling, sometimes that's meditation, sometimes it's um, creating a practice of taking pause um, before acting. It's, it's pretty subjective, um, but those are kind of the headlines. And uh, it's some of my favorite work because it, it really is a practice of mindfulness at its most fundamental. So are you sort of revisiting the session with the person and going over the salient features, what stood out for them? Is, it, is that what you mean by integration? Yeah, more often than not, I start with asking, you know, let's revisit what the intention was um, and what came out of that intention and what were some of the key takeaways um, from, the, from the ceremony or from the journey. Um, 
and then plugging those into play. And do people always have things that they can talk about? Yeah, and you know, I do occasionally have someone who says, okay, I don't know, I'm not sure. And that's where the meditation, the visualization really helps. Kind of dropping back in, taking them back to that moment or those moments, um, working on breathing exercises. And like I said, you know, at its most fundamental, integration is engaging in mindfulness practices and even being mindful of how to remember. Oh!